back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers of with the... uh, I can't even talk today. It's one of those days. We've already had a a minor technical glitch. It's, It's just one of those days. But we go behind the lens and below the line every week if, with live interviews, pre-recorded exclusive interviews, talking to the movers and shakers who make the film and TV that we see today. Uh, writers, directors, producers, composers, costume designers, production designers, uh, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, film editors, video editors, um, you name it. And we talk to them. Um, very excited about today. Of course, let me give you, I haven't done this in a while, but let me give you the whole spiel about where you can find us. Of course, if you're listening right now, you know that every Monday we are right here live on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, because Big Boss Nick likes to play with things, uh, he also does a a live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. Uh, so, and the only exciting thing you're going to see is my ever-changing tablescape. Um, if you're watching on the Facebook live stream right now, you're going to see my latest haul from this summer's Criterion Collection sale. Uh, cinephiles are well acquainted, I'm sure, with the Criterion Collection and uh, what they do with the titles that they release. All of their titles are numbered. Uh, and then there are always some really fabulous extras and restorations uh, as part of uh, their release packages. And uh, it's great for classic films, as anybody uh, watching right now will see. I picked up The Lady Eve, All About Eve, Hitchcock's foreign correspondent, one of my favorites, uh, All That Heaven Allows. Um, oh, what else? What's this one? Ah, wait a minute. Got to look. Yep. Heaven Can Wait, Woman of the Year. Um, so I splurged. Uh, and whenever, watch for it. If you're a collector, watch for Criterion and when they have their sales. Generally, it's in the summer, in July. Um, and you can pick up some incredible, incredible pricing uh, and add some really outstanding films to your collections. Um, I'm very excited about, to, you can also find, if you miss us live, after today, the film is archived on not only the AdrenalineRadio.com. You can go to that in all of our shows. I think, it, it, Pam, I think there's, what, like three months worth up there? About three months, and then they have to rotate it out. But every episode for the past seven years of Behind the Lens uh, is on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, we're also on all of the podcast platforms, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, uh, Apple, iTunes, you name it, it's Spreaker, it's, we're out there. So you can find us everywhere. But of course, the best place is every Monday right here on AdrenalineRadio.com at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. I'm very excited about today's show. Um, An incredible talent, a great actor, uh, James Grixoni is going to be joining us live at the midpoint of the show. Uh, he was scheduled to be with us a couple weeks ago, but due to illness, he could not join us, but he is fit as a fiddle. He is joining us today. Uh, 
And many of you know him best as Deputy Jesse Holcomb on the Twin Peaks reboot uh, directed by David Lynch. Um, But now James is, in addition to acting, he's in the process of developing a new project and is in the throes of development, uh, obtaining funding, all that fun stuff. So we're going to be talking to James not only about his acting career, stage, big screen, and small screen, but also about this new venture. Um, Very curious. We're getting it on the ground floor here. So that's going to be fun. Before James joins us, though, you're going to hear from another James. You heard me mention this film last week. I highly, highly recommend it. Made in Italy, stars Liam Neeson, his son, Michael Richardson. Um, And it is about a widower and his son who have been somewhat estranged. They are reconnecting, and they're reconnecting over a family house in Tuscany that the son needs the money for, wants to sell. It's in total disrepair. Dad says, okay, I'll help you fix it up. We'll sell it. But then the memories, of course, kick in. And it's a wonderful, wonderful film as father and son reconnect, share their grief over the loss of wife and mother. And as I mentioned last week, making this even more poignant is the fact that Liam and Michael are father and son, and they went through this very situation with the death of Natasha Richardson some years ago, Liam's wife, Michael's mother. Um, The film is beautiful. James D'Arcy wrote and directed it. Um, And you all know James as an actor. Uh, The Hot Zone, Avengers Endgame, voicing Jarvis, uh, Agent Carter in Hitchcock. He did an incredible job playing Anthony Perkins, uh, he's he has been around Homeland, Dunkirk. You all know James, um, but he's now jumped behind the camera. He previously did a short film called Chicken Slash Egg, but now he impresses with his first narrative feature, which is Made in Italy. Um, he actually wrote it over twelve years ago. Uh, and now decided, no, he didn't want to star in it. He wanted to direct it. Uh, he does an amazing job. Stars Liam and Michael. Uh, joining them are Valeria uh, Billalore and Lindsay Duncan. Lindsay Duncan, I'm a big fan of hers. Lindsay Duncan, many of you may remember, she was in another film shot in Tuscany, Under the Tuscan Sun, starring Diane Lane. Uh, I spoke last Monday morning before I raced in here to the studio. I spoke with James in an exclusive interview uh, where we cover everything uh, from working with cinematographer Mike Ely, talking about the focal length and the lighting and Mike's command of that diffuse sunlight in, in the Tuscany region. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that you got to think back to like your sixth grade science, science classes here, but the light is diffused differently in different parts of the world. Uh, even along, uh, you know, when you're looking at longitude and latitude, even along the meridian lines um, in different sections of the world due to topography, the light 
is diffused in different ways. And that always impacts the look of a film. And here, all it does is make this film more beautiful. Alex Belcher scored the film. Alex Belcher, I first heard, um, leave it to the Russos. I think they're the first ones that discovered Alex Belcher. And uh, they put him to work scoring 21 Bridges, which which starred Chadwick Boseman. Uh, and if you have seen 21 Bridges, if you haven't, I recommend you do. Um, but Alex's score, if you hear that and you hear what he does here with Made in Italy, like night and day, it shows him off, shows off his diversity, his talent as a composer. Um, his orchestrals here are so light in tone, light in instrumentation as well. And this is one of the few instances where I really see a marriage between the score and the cinematography. It's, it's a very interesting as you watch the film and you hear the score and you see the visual lightness. Um, it's so well done, really well done. And I can't wait to hear more from Alex in the future. Um, but just an exquisite film. It really is a must-see. It opened on Friday uh, in some theaters, but available everywhere online due to 90% of the country still being shut down, the movie theater shut down. Um, but without any further ado, let's hear from our first James of today. Let's hear from James D'Arcy in our exclusive interview talking about Made in Italy. How are you, James? I'm doing very well. I'm doing, under the circumstances, Debbie, I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so good to talk to you. I think the last time you and I got to talk was actually for Hitchcock about your portrayal as Tony Perkins. Oh, yeah, that was fun. That was really fun. Uh, that was one of the, mo the most incredible performances I've ever seen. And as a huge classic film fan, um, it's still your performance still stays with me. Debbie, I feel like this interview is going so well already. <laughs> uh, I'm really enjoying myself. <laughs> I'm glad. But now you totally turn the tables on me with Made in Italy. And you write and direct. You opt not to star in it. And as I emailed to Shana, watching this film, every movie should be shot in Tuscany. Every movie should be shot in a Tuscan villa. Every movie should be shot in a Tuscan villa with a perfectly symmetrical view. Everyone should have a cinematographer like Mike Ely shooting this and, should ha and have Liam and Michael as father and son and you directing it. This film is a pure joy and delight from beginning to end. It is a sweet charmer. Your technical prowess and skill as a director honed by all your years in front of the camera is so evident here. I love this film. Debbie, this is the best interview I've, literally the best interview I've ever done in my life. Thank you so much. That is just, honestly, I, I haven't, done very much press for the film so you're one of the very first people i've spoken to who's who's you know professional professional people who's seen it so i can't tell you how meaningful that is oh, so thank you james i mean and you even you've got alex belcher doing your score and uh, well i lucked out with alex because i know joe russo a little bit ah. I, was, 
when I was texting him when I was making the movie and we were having a little, you know, he, he, he just quietly gave me a couple of ideas, things that I could do. And, and, and I, we were talking about music and he said, don't even worry about the composer, I've got the guy for you. And he introduced me to Alex and Alex was just, you know, I, I just feel like I got so lucky getting such a brilliant composer at a point in his life where I could more or less afford him. You know yes, what I mean? like, yes. I, that, that won't be the case in two years' time. <laughs> because I fell in love with his work with 21 Bridges, um, yeah. which the Russos, I think, exact on that. So, they yeah, because Chad's in it. Um, but, uh, you know, now uh, what he delivers here is totally different. And yeah. it just helps so much. It's orchestral, it's light in tone. It's light and instrumentation. It mirrors Mike's cinematography beautifully. You have such a marriage here of your cinematic disciplines, James. How did you go about putting this, putting this together and stepping into putting on your director's hat here? I, I, I honestly, I'm trying to think back as to how we did it. You know, look. I, I only met two directors of photography. Mike was the first one I met. Actually, no, I, maybe Mike must have been the second one because I offered him the job on the spot, which the producers were furious at me for. But I actually asked Mike if he would come and shoot the film based on the way he smiled at me when he walked into the room. I mean, I, I knew his work. I knew he was a brilliant cinematographer. But when he walked in the room and smiled at me, something in me went, I know that this man has exactly the right uh, sensibilities to shoot this film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we, 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 you know, we talked about it and we talked a lot about the Coen brothers and the way that they shoot films. And, you know, we knew that we didn't have a great deal of money. We knew that we didn't have a great deal of time. We, you know, we, we knew that in that regard, there was a film called Eighth Grade that came out, which I also referenced quite a bit. Mm -hmm. What I thought that, I mean, I thought that film was utterly brilliant. And, and, but what it did was, they didn't try and do anything particularly tricksy or clever with the camera, apart from in one or two places where Bo Burnham obviously went, okay, now we're gonna, we're just gonna do a couple of things here. And it just worked brilliantly because, you know, I was so involved in that story. And, you know, I wanted to try and, get a little bit out of the way. I didn't want to be ostentatiously directing the film um, uh, because, it's, because it's about people. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to allow the audience to, 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 to get to know them without, you know, even if you're just a punter, subconsciously you're very aware, you, you, subconsciously you feel that, oh, the, the director quietly working away if they're doing anything too tricksy. So, you know, we wanted to just pick our moments, but mainly I wanted to let the film live, you mm -hmm. know, and I wanted to trust the actors. And um, I guess that's how that's how we set about doing it. And honestly, you know, we, we, we really helped ourselves out by doing that because we didn't have a lot of time. And, you know, by picking our moments where we wanted to sort of do something a little bit flashier, but, you know, more movement and what have you um it, it really helped us mm -hmm. well something that you and mike do that's so effortless that really lets you get out of the way so to speak is you really make the greatest use of that diffused light that we find in tuscany 
Um, that that just adds to the whole ambient nature and look of the film. So you don't even have to worry about making it look good because Mike knows how to use that light and how to work with that light and does it so beautifully. And it adds almost a gauzy veil, like a Greta, a Greta Garbo uh, kind of effect. Yeah, we, we- we, we definitely we definitely talked about that and I have to say and this will you know blow your mind the, the weather when we were in Tuscany was terrible <gasps> almost every single one of those interiors uh-huh. is pouring with rain outside and there are three guys hanging off lights as it I mean it was the worst May in half a century in Tuscany <laughs> last okay. year and so what happened was we ended up pushing almost all of our exteriors to the last week of the shoot. Wow. And then cro- and crossing our fingers. And thank God the weather broke. And we managed to get... Well, basically, I, I think that every second that the sun shines is on film. Uh, well, it, it's abs- and the sky is so blue, and it, it's just... It's magical. It's magical, and it suits. But we, we we definitely knew that we were that you know part of the appeal of Tuscany was not to go to Tuscany and actually shoot what we had last May, which was driving rain and grey skies. We wanted it to be, we wanted you to be able to sort of take a nice warm bath in the film, mm-hmm. and I wanted and I wanted to, to very gently, lightly, comedically lead the audience into a more emotional place because I felt that. I am more available to a deeper conversation if you kind of laugh me into bed, as it were. Do you yes, know what I mean? Very much so. Very much so. And you do that so beautifully with the script, and where it, and really, it's casting Liam and Michael because almost everybody knows their real life story. So right. this, I think, this is possibly as cathartic maybe for them um, as it is for the audience to actually see this loss, this grief shared by a father and son and knowing they have already had to to deal with this. It is so eloquently, so beautifully and so heartfelt in in the way that you present this that when, when we when we shot those more emotional scenes, there wasn't a lot of conversation between the three of us. No. You know, I, I tried to explain how long I felt, it, how many setups we had, and how long I thought it would take us to get to that part of the scene, and you know, so that they could sort of time it for themselves. But we didn't we didn't really talk about it. We didn't, you know we never really rehearsed it. We just shot it, and I and I knew that you know as we were doing it the takes that have made it into the film, I knew that, you know, both of them had gone somewhere, you know, they had mined their own lives a little bit. You know, yeah. we're, not, we're not trying to make family therapy for the nieces or whatever. We're trying to make an entertainment. But I know as an actor that you do borrow from your own life. Sure. You know, that's, how I, that's how I wrote the script. My own father died when I was very young, and I think this is my kind of fantasy love letter or something to... Fathers. And this is um, your own catharsis, James. 
This is this is uh, your own catharsis, in a manner of speaking. You know what? Perhaps when I started writing the script, that might might be true. But 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 I'm really honest, Debbie. By the time we were shooting it, it wasn't catharsis at all. It was oh my god, we've got ten more set up. <laughs> you know, like you think it might be cathartic, and there was a lot of apprehension going into the bigger days. But the truth is. It wasn't like that at all. I was I was just at work. I was just trying, you know, and, and it was a bit of a relief for me, to be honest, that for once, I wasn't the person who had to, you know, find the tears on the third take or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it, it was it's kind of nice to be the other side of the camera. It was very nice. I loved directing. I really, really enjoyed it. So, what, um, made, what made this the film for you to jump into feature directing? With all of your experience... Um, I'm just curious why this one, after all this time, was the one for a feature for you to get behind the camera. I, uh, it, you know what? When I, I I wrote it a very long time ago, and I wrote it intending to act in it. Uh, that's how long ago I wrote it. And gradually, I, you know, first got too old. I left the film alone for a long, long time. I didn't go back to it. And then I made a short film, which I had really, you know, it's called, which you can, uh, it's called Chicken and Egg. Chicken, mm -hmm. chicken slash egg, chicken egg, it's on YouTube. And, and I enjoyed it so much. And the guy who produced it said, well, what have you written? And so I showed him this film and he said, this is a perfect first feature because it doesn't, you know, technically you don't have to, it's not like you're doing the big car chase action sequences or whatever, mm -hmm. it's not that expensive. And it's very, very heartfelt. Why don't we develop it together? And so with, um, he's called Sam Pippa Hale and Pippa Cross, they work together at this company called Cross Day. And we did develop it. And I think the reason that I wanted to do it was because even as an actor, the thing that I'm most interested in is, I mean, as a viewer, as an audience member, I want to be moved. I want to feel difficult emotions. You know, and, and I, when I had written the script, Debbie, it had been as a, it, 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 it was at a time when The Sopranos was on TV and Breaking Bad and every leading character had to be so screwed up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write something where we were dramatic, but hopeful. And I feel like there's not enough of that in the world. And, you know, particularly, you know, you know, right now, yes. in, in this moment, in 2020, I feel like the world could use some hope. We could use a bit of hope, and we could use a bit of love, and we could use a bit of a laugh, and we could all use going on a vacation that we can't go on. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of hoping that we, you know, tick some boxes for people that perhaps ordinarily might not come and see this film. Well, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned humor, because... We definitely, we get the love, we get the lightness, we see romance blossoming and people, the journey of their lives. But you also let us have some really sweet fun. Your house painting montage is just between uh, Michael and, uh, who do you have as, as uh, and, and um, the little girl that you have? The little girl Costanza. Yeah. Oh my gosh, she is a she's a scene stealer. Okay. But watching them together and watching the funny faces and watching the father son moments, and that mon your montages, you only got two, but they are so well cut. Um, they're short, they're sweet. You get in, you get out. They're moments. It's like snapshots looking through a family album, 
and they are just so resonant, I think, from an emotional standpoint. Thanks, Debbie. You know, honestly, they, they were, they, I, I'm so pleased to hear you say that. They were, they were challenging. Um, you know, I, when I wrote this script, I wouldn't write it now, I don't think, because I was so naive. I didn't write a B-plot. There's nothing to cut to. Mm-hmm. I'm, with the, I'm with the same three people all the time. So den- denoting the passage of time is actually extremely difficult. Um, so I'm very happy that you feel that some of that has worked. And I, you know, I tried when we had to do those those beats. I tried to make it so that they were a little, slightly, just slightly different, just more, just fun. You know, I wanted them to yeah. be a little bit of fun. And that's exactly how they come across. And but then on the flip side, you've got what's a beautiful sequence in your third act, the tire swing. Oh my God. You, you made my heart stop with the beauty and the emotion of that moment, that nighttime moment with the tire swing at the pond. Oh, Debbie, this is, honestly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record this interview and play it back to myself at night so I can get to sleep. This is amazing. Oh, I mean, all of these little moments that you capture, and they are, there is every one of these moments, James, someone watching this film has experienced in their life. And they will be touched by this. It will resonate with them. I hope so. That's that's look. That my my honestly, Debbie. The, the, the best compliment I could imagine for this film is that people who watch it at the end of it, they think I'm just going to give my mom or my dad a ring, or mm-hmm. my son or my daughter a ring, and you know, people just feel inspired to be a little more connected. You know, that's that's honestly. It's, it's not. It's, that's my my real hope for the film is that people you know you, you have a good time and at the end of it you feel a bit better about humanity mm-hmm. and about yourself and about yourself in humanity yes well you know you mentioned connection well a big connection here that I just chuckled at that I love is casting Lindsay Duncan uh, okay. as Kate uh, anybody you know I love her work I have followed her work and of course the other famous movie shot in Tuscany um, under the Tuscan sun she was in. I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, you know, look, I didn't cast it because of Under the Tuscan Sun and uh, truthfully, it, it's a very long time since I watched that film. I didn't <laughs> want to watch it when we were in prep because I didn't want to inadvertently steal any of their stuff. Yeah. I, I had slightly forgotten that Lindsay was in it. I worked with, with Lindsay on an episode of Quaro about, I don't know, 15 years ago wow. and we got on we got on like a house on fire and I just knew I, I know how funny Lindsay is and I knew that she would eat up that dialogue for breakfast oh god god did she and watching she her and Liam that's my favourite bit of the film the, 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 the ending of their relationship and I had to fight quite hard for this because I had a lot of executive pressure to why don't they kiss they should kiss they should kiss and I said but no they shouldn't actually they sh- you should you should have a question mark. You should hope they kick, but I don't want to show it. That's it. But since I have one last question, James, I've got to ask you, what did you take away from the making of this film, learn about yourself as a director now, that you can take forward into future films, be it as an actor or as a director? Has your, has your POV skewed? Um, has your mindset changed as to how you will approach roles. I'm curious about 
about what you learned about you that you can take forward now. But you know, look, it's a big deal to you know someone someone gives you uh, millions of dollars to, to and you're in charge of making sure that you know that that isn't a disaster. That's a lot of responsibility, and I I feel very proud of myself that we didn't screw the movie up completely. Um, you know, uh, I also as an actor, I learned. I learned quite a bit. Um, I, 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 I now actually approach acting in a slightly different way as a result. Because I can see the benefits of not getting too married to one particular way of doing it. Uh, I know that the directors will thank me in the editing room. Um, as a director, I, you know, look, just the fact that I did it. I know, I know so many people who talk about making movies and don't. And somehow... We managed to. We managed to do it. And I feel so proud that, you know, from a blinking cursor, there's now, you know, a link. <laughs> We've gone from a blinking cursor to one sentence you can click on and have two hours of entertainment or an hour and a half, whatever we are. Um, you know, and, and I hope that I hope I get a chance to do it again. And if I do, I'm sure that, you know, technically I would. I felt like I improved as we went along during the filming. So... You know, there's, there's much to learn, and I'm up for that challenge. Well, and I'm up for seeing you write and direct more and, and bring us more great stories like this, James. I can't wait to see what you direct next, because I think you will be directing for quite a while to come. Thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate everything you said. Thank oh, you. James, thank you, and you have a wonderful, wonderful day. You too, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. bye-bye. And that was James D'Arcy, writer-director of Made in Italy. If you haven't seen it yet, please do yourself a favor. Log on, spend the $6.99, and see it. It's a beautiful film. And watching Liam and Michael is half the joy of this film on so many levels. But right now we've got more joy coming because now we have the second James of today. We've got James Grixoni joining us. Hello, James. Hey, what's going on? Not much. This is like the day of the Jameses, you know? Funny how that that worked <laughs> out. Um, it's, um, it's a very James kind of day. I, J- I saw that you were talking to James Darcy. Yes, Oh, that's awesome, man! What a what a treat that is. That guy's a great director. Oh my God, have you seen his new his film Made in Italy that just opened? I saw um, like an advertisement for it, and it just it looked beautiful, and it just looked like a really cool story. And then I've seen um, I want to say he was in Dunkirk. He was in Dun- oh, as an actor. He- yes, he was in Dunkirk. Yeah, yes. yeah. What a trip, man! It's it's just crazy. All these guys who you may not know them like as quote-unquote, the A-lister or the elites of the industry, but then you see that these guys have worked consistently for years Mm -hmm. and are the real, like, champions of the industry. It's really cool to kind of get to talk with these people. Well, and, you know, and then when they make a leap from the expected of just being in front of the camera and going behind it and writing and directing the film, like, which is what he did here with Made in Italy, I I think that's wonderful. Clark Gregg, I, I spoke with Clark at length um, last, when was it, a couple months ago, Pam? A couple months ago. 
um, yeah. spoke with Clark, or last year. Last year? No, it was last year We I talked to Clark. Uh, not Clark Gregg. Um, Jesus Christ, I'm going crazy today. It's it's a Monday kind of day. <laughs> it's a Monday kind of day. Greg Kinnear. Everybody's going crazy to yeah. some degree, right? <laughs> uh, you know. Um, no, Greg Kinnear, uh, who made his directorial debut. And he said it was the hardest, mm. hardest thing he ever did. And he starred in the film as well. You know, that's really funny, though, because I'm I'm in the process of uh, writing and directing my first feature. And it's one of those things that I feel like I was kind of hearing the interview before I came on. Um, this idea is like as an actor, you're such a cog in the overall wheel of this this project that is the film. And I feel like when you can kind of step up to a director role, you're, it's kind of more of your vision. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I found. Um, as an actor, I'm 31 and I've been doing this since I was like 14 or 15. And, you know, the further I get along in this career, the more I'm like, oh, I've got this vision that I want to promote. And it's usually, uh, that's either the producer or the director I'm finding who, uh, is kind of in charge of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you have consistently been working since you started acting, um, yeah, you know, you've done stage, you've done big screen, small screen. Um, yeah. and I love the fact that you also have done a lot of commercials and, uh, in-house videos as well, which is something, that, <laughs> yeah. well, which is something yeah. that a lot of actors, when they're wor- working actors, I know many that complain, oh, I didn't get a call back. I didn't get this. Well, uh, you know, they're only looking for. I want to be on a series. I want to be in a film. Um, Honey, I got news for you. You need a job. You go audition. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I've learned, too, is, you know, because I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm hosting a podcast as well called The Production Meeting with, uh, I think, a mutual friend of ours, Clint Morris. Yes. Um, He's amazing. Amazing. Him and Gabriel Campisi, both uh, very amazing gentlemen. I love Clint. Um. Yeah, he's a good dude. But, uh, yeah, so in working with this podcast, I've learned a lot about uh, each actor that we've interviewed says the two same things um, in each interview, completely unrelated with Mm -hmm. one another as actors, but that is relinquish expectation and follow your passion. And so in regards to like doing in-house videos or commercials or or TV or movies, or I even make music and podcasts and everything, it's one of those things that's just like you can't really have an expectation for what you want, but just a sense of gratitude for what you have Mm -hmm. and what you're given. Um, And I think that that's, you know, it's worked for me up to this point of uh, just kind of, again, relinquishing the expectation of Mm -hmm. wanting to be like Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and just being like, no, I'm James. I'm just going to do the work. Look, just just remember, one of Leo's earliest performances was on Growing Pains, opposite yeah. Kirk Cameron and Alan Thicke. Yeah, Kirk so, Cameron. Oh, my God, what a name to bring up from the past. He, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, too, he did uh, What's Eating Gilbert yes, Grape, which did. I still think is like one of his greatest performances, and I, I feel like he should have won an Oscar for that. It was so amazing. You know, I, it, what I what I love is is when people start out at a young age like you did, and you consistently work and you consistently better yourself and you consistently push yourself, 
and expand. As you get bigger, you expand your horizons. I love this this thing, this podcast idea that you and Clint are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things. It's one of those things with what's going on right now. Um, it's like you have to find a way to be creative, and you have yeah. to find a way to keep to not let what's going on in the external world drag your internal self down. And um, it's really fun because Clint, who's such a mentor, such a collaborator, such yeah. an amazing person, um, giving me this opportunity to interview. The thing I think is funny is I'm interviewing all these like 1990s actors and mm-hmm. 1980s um, actors who dominated their industry at that time. And I'm really honored to be interviewing them. But I think what we've come to the realization is, is that, it's kind of a different industry now, navigating yeah. this industry versus the 1990s, you know, where it was much more of a mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so as, as we're navigating kind of this new, new birth of, you know, streaming, virtual reality, gaming, um, independent versus high-end productions, it's really cool to talk to people who have gone through it yep. um, and just kind of their minds and you realize it's like all these people who i looked up to as gods in a sense you know godly figures they're just regular people who are trying to get by that's and that's just it and when i started in the industry here in in la and i was doing second unit work and doing pa work and and pickups that was in the very early 80s 82 83 Mm. 84 um and i was writing and doing other things at the same time but to see how the industry has changed in the past almost 40 years for me <laughs> um, and to have weathered and gone through all of those changes. And, you know, here I am almost 40 years later and I'm still picking up and producing some projects on occasion and getting involved in some things. Um, but it's a whole different ball game. But the, mm-hmm. the one consistent thing that and I'm sure you're going to learn this from all the people of the 80s and the 90s it in their quote unquote heyday when you talk with them is it's about the level of performance it's about the level of dedication it's about commitment it's about having a work ethic um and it's about putting aside the ego oh my god yeah uh, oh yeah that that's <clears throat> yeah so have you got have you gotten to talk to Richard Reilly yet? Um, no, 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 not, <laughs> no, not yet. You should ask. Why? What, what should no. I? Do? What should I expect? You should ask. <laughs> you want you want an incredible experience. Richard and I first met almost forty years ago, like thirty eight, thirty nine years ago, and over the mm-hmm. over the decades, we have consistently bumped into each other. Because um, he used to do a lot of westerns, and I was hanging out with all the old stuntmen who were who were doing John Wayne, John Ford westerns, um, and I was very lucky that these guys kind of took me under their wing, and that led to it was just introducing me to somebody, and then things kind of snowballed, and then I started mm-hmm. finding my way. But Richard has been yeah. one of those guys that, and it's always so good to talk to him because he always works. Always. I think he must have close to 300 IMDb credits. That's Uh, incredible. And he loves independent film. He loves these small roles. You know, the juicier the better. Um, 
you know, even Sam Elliott. Sam and I go all the way back. The first time we met was on the Yellow Rose. You know, that's crazy. We, I, I know Sam Elliott. I mean, I've heard, I mean, yeah. I'm a fan. That's awesome. We were both, we were both <laughs> newbies. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's always nice to run into Sam and catch well, up again it, with Sam. Isn't it funny, too, that, like, we all go into this industry as dreamers, and then we, we get in, and, like, it's just so surreal that, like, you and I both and all these people we've met, it's like we migrate into this industry with these dreams, and then we, in a sense, we attain them. And it's, it's just such a dream. It's such a, a gift to go through reality and be going through this industry that, again, you can only dream of. And um, when I was like 20 years old, 2021, um, I got the chance to be Tobey Maguire's uh, mm-hmm. uh, body double. And so, you know, at 20 years old, you're being like kind of skyrocketed to the guy that played Spider-Man and just follow him around. And yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting experience going through this industry. It's insane because it's so inconsistent. But it also, I feel like, teaches an individual about a lot of work ethic and just this kind of idea of pressing forward. And you said earlier, putting your ego aside. Yeah. Yeah, that I feel like the more you can relinquish the ego, the better off you are as just an individual. Well, I think, you know, the first time that I learned that, I was very young. I was probably five or six years old. I grew up in Philly, and my dad worked oh, for, yeah. my dad worked in broadcast television for 60 years till the day he died at WFIL WPVI uh, in Philadelphia and the Beatles were there. Uh, wow. Not in their February Ed Sullivan, but in September they were back and they were doing and WFL had an AM radio compliment as well and an FM radio. And it was a whole big thing. Um, and I got to meet the Beatles and my dad and this, yeah. st- this stuck <laughs> with me till the day I died. Uh, you know, he said, they're no different than you. And when you're five, normally the expression is, every, you know, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. When you're five, yeah. you know, five or six, you know, what's the way to connect? They go to the bathroom just like you do. And yeah. I n- always remembered that. Always. From small on, I remembered that. And then many mm. years later, I got to reconnect with John Lennon who was in town doing a radio marathon at the station. Um, and I, I actually, I told him that story and he just laughed. He thought it was hilarious. Hilarious. Wow, but with that perspective and growing up with my dad in the, in the, in the industry, and there were tons of famous people going in and out of the station all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in the early days, you know, with American Bandstand came out of the st- was broadcast from there when it was Bandstand before it, they went national. Um, yeah. So yeah, Philly's Philly's a really interesting place. It's so, you know, it was always. I think the only time I was ever kind of like, oh my god, was meeting Bob Hope. I actually had lunch. You met Bob Hope. I actually had lunch in his house. And he gave me a golf wow. ball. <laughs> I yeah. got to ask you, though, who was your favorite Beatle? Oh, Paul. Oh, come on. There's no question. You're so funny. I love George. 
George. I have a, fr- a friend of mine, George, is my friend, Darren Chandler, who is a musician. Uh, yes, George is Darren's favorite, favorite Beatle. Uh, it's, yeah, he, it's just the spiritual element that he kind of got into later in life. I thought, well, him and John, too. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, John being assassinated so early on, and I wasn't alive for that. Um, but my dad was a huge George Harrison fan. And then funny enough, I'm a, dr- I'm a drummer, so I grew up loving um, Ringo Starr. But then you kind of move on in music, and mm-hmm. like then I'm starting to fall in love with like Don Bonham and uh, Keith Moon, you know, as like the classic drummers. But mm-hmm. yeah, George, George and John both are just like, as people, they just seem very like high resonating. Yeah, and then after I was out here in L.A., I actually, um, Julian uh, Lennon played up at Universal Amphitheater. And, uh, wow. I, I, I actually, he invited me. I got to go to, um, there were, he was having parties at his uh, hotel suite, and I got to go to some of the parties with him and actually oh, talk to him so about cool. his dad. So that was really, that was cool. But, no, the, the one person that actually really, was Bob Hope. That was, but. And I'd met, and over the decades, I met I met so many of old Hollywood, who are no longer with us, even young Hollywood yeah. that are no longer with us. But they were. Well, it's funny. It's it's just funny because I was sit, um, working on Twin Peaks. It was I was sitting in this chair um, next to Harry Ghost, who plays uh, Deputy Andy, and he looks over at me, and he's like, "So, are you famous? Because I don't know who's famous anymore." <laughs> and I look at him, and I'm like. I'm like, nah, man, I'm just some regular guy from Seattle. And he was like, you should tell everyone you're famous. <laughs> I was like, like, all right, man. But it's like we live in a world now where it's really difficult to, to – it's not difficult. It's just fame has kind of dissolved into such a wider pool that I think mm-hmm. in a sense it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's more about what you're doing and not who you are. Yeah. It uh, For me, it's – your work speaks for itself. What is the yeah. quality of your work, the consistency of your work? Um, I don't care if you're pink, purple, polka-dotted, striped, male, female, robot. You know, what is your work? What is your character? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. because you are writing and developing this new project, which you must share... Um, yeah. You know, how does that impact your perspective on getting this project off the ground? Mm. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure what you were talking about with uh, the previous James, but uh, in my experience, trying to make a movie is almost like climbing Mount Everest without any gear. Um, it feels like... Um, because again, naturally I'm finding that I'm such a creative entity. Like mm-hmm. I love to write, make music, you know, act and dance and everything like that. And, um, on the business end, when it comes to finances and money, um, that's where I'm finding the difficulty. <laughs> and then again, it's like, then you have to find producers and people with the money and those people have their perspectives. And so in in writing my film, I, uh, basically just I, I wrote it i copyrighted it that way i've got the actual like, okay. you know creative property to me right and then the the collaboration begins and i i'm it's again you talk about relinquishing the ego i feel like 
when you go into a collaboration, there's a sense of relinquishing some elements, um, but kind of trying the best you can to find a comfortable medium um, when you're working with these other people. Even costumes, lighting, makeup, like it's all a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. the film that the film that I, I wrote, it's just a really personal story to me. Um, it talks a lot about mental health and addiction. And um, so, again, it's, it's this thing that's like it's a part of me that I now have to start sharing with people. Mm-hmm. And the more that I find, again, relinquish expectation, follow your passion, the more I can present what I love and then let the universe kind of start molding it into what it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. I think the better off, like if you just have that perspective, um, the better off you're going to be as a director and as just a creator. Now, do you plan on directing this project if you can or, Oh, that's a great question. Or are you going to hand the reins over and then have to sit if back already... and bite your nails at, at what people are doing to to your words? Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would probably, I would hope to direct, um, but at the same time, I'm very, very blessed to know some very phenomenal directors that I'm friends with mm-hmm. um, who've made a career out of directing. And so, again, it's this idea of collaborating with people. And it's also like the way I look at it, too, is directors and, and studios have hired me to bring a character to their screen and to mm-hmm. their story. So it's in a sense, it's like it's our duty and a responsibility to bring people in to your circle to try and grow whatever it is that, you, that you're trying to make. And so, yeah, if I again, it's like if this director could serve the story better than my directing, then one would feel so inclined to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you... Again, it's not these stories aren't about me. Right. These stories are about people because at the end of the day, we're all storytellers. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we tell stories is to impact people, to affect people. And so, like, it, again, it's, it's just not about me. Well, you know, and you mentioned directors, and you have worked with some big directors, um, mm. one, one of which, and it, it just makes me chuckle that you were in Safety Not Guaranteed, which is. I still remember exactly where I was sitting down talking in a one-on-one with Colin Trevorrow about that film. And look, yeah. and look where he is now. Uh, over in the United Kingdom at Pinewood, right this minute, directing another Jurassic Park movie. Oh, is he over there doing that? Good for him. He did, um, I think he did the last Jurassic Park movie yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, yeah, he's, that's so funny. I'm, uh, that's funny you didn't mention David Lynch. Uh, Colin Trevorrow, yeah, he, uh, that guy was so incredibly nice because I got on the set of Safety Not Guaranteed, which, by the way, uh, that movie kind of brought me to tears at the end, this oh. kind of idea of, of love and lost love. Just, that, yeah, that was such a beautiful And film. I still think it's one of Mark's best performances. Mark Duplass? Yes, I still think it's one of he, Mark's yeah. best. Well, him and Creep too, uh, the movie Creep. Mm-hmm. That guy, he if you if you've ever seen that, he plays probably the best psychopath I've ever seen in the movie. <laughs> um, he just makes you so on edge. But yeah, um, he, Colin was great because he had again he has uh, the most successful people I find are very personable, and he brought me. You know, he took me to his 
dinner table on, on set, and we got to sit down and talk. Um, and unfortunately, this is what I learned on that set is, and in theater I learned this too, but when I started working on film, I get really nervous. Um, and that is when I learned on his film set is to go 110% and be drawn back. It's to not hold back what you want to do, but to go way overboard, if anything, and have them bring you back. Because mm-hmm. in that film, my, my part got cut out. And, I, you know, you take that, I think as an actor, you take that and you're kind of like, it's like a jab in your gut a little bit. Um, but, but Colin was really communicative and kind about, like, this is why and this is what happened. Um, and it's just one of those things that as an actor, it's hard not to be so cerebral in your mind about, oh, I wish I could do that again, or I wish you could do this right. again. But it is, it's one of those things that I'm learning is like in life and then in your art, you just, you got to give it your all. And that way, if like, if it ever does get cut out or if it doesn't get cut out, at least you can say to yourself like, yeah, I gave him all. But yeah, you're standing there with Mark, you're standing there with Mark Duplass, Aubrey Plaza, <laughs> Colin Trevorrow. And this is one of your first movies you've ever actually worked on. I just remember my heart rate was so jacked. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. But then, you know, great. you fast forward a few years, and here you are in a reboot of one of the most beloved series of all times, Twin Peaks. Hmm. And you're here with yeah. David Lynch. Yeah. Kind, kind gentleman he is. Um what does yeah, that, that do was, for uh, you as an actor? What, what does that do for you as an actor? Um, because it, when you were, did Safety Not Guaranteed, Colin was at the at the start of his career. Um, it was mm-hmm. still earlier in yours. And then here you are, David Lynch, a legend, an icon. Yeah. And you're in Twin Peaks. Yeah, it was. Um, it did a lot of things for me, I think, in, internally and externally. Um, working with somebody like David Lynch, who's a very ethereal, dreamlike um, composer of imagery and sound, yeah. allowed me to look at the art and the craft of the entertainment industry in a completely new light. Um, this idea of breaking from the mainstream narrative and diving deep into sensations and diving deep into kind of the internal odyssey that is being a human being um so it did it did a lot for me on that sense of creativity and this ability to be like hey i'm an artist i'm gonna do whatever the hell i want and i'm just gonna i'm gonna come from an original authentic place so that really instilled a lot of confidence but then on the other side is it kind of as for my career it shot me to a level of fame that i guess i only really dreamt about Mm -hmm. um and just kind of gave me this sort of fan base. But what I learned in that is the fans of that show, they're like family. And it, I'm really honored and I'm really blessed that, you know, I could have gotten, you know, I could have been on a TV show that maybe had, you know, 15-year-olds loving it and kind of that drove of the young consumer. But actually these, these people who are fans of Twin Peaks, they're a little bit older and they're a lot more um, – I'd say, like, there's a sense of wisdom and intelligence, and, you know, you can kind of have this, these conversations with these fans that are just very deep and profound. Um, and so it did a lot for me in my career in this kind of idea of quote-unquote stardom. Mm-hmm. But I think really what it allowed me to do was to backtrack and just uh, work with David and, his, and just watch him do his thing. Uh, really 
taught me to embrace the authentic artist that is each one of us um, and to really listen to that voice inside. And then on the acting end, it was just, it was a fucking, it was a dream. It was an absolute dream. Um, his directing the whole atmosphere of, of the set, literally being a deputy in the town of Twin Peaks, too, just had such a wave of nostalgia to it as well. So it was, it was a deep honor, deep honor. So now working with somebody like David Lynch, how does that, if it, if it has at all, how does that impact your approach when you're writing the, the script for the film you're now developing? Did that impact you at all? Does that impact your approach to presenting this in development for funding? That's a great question. Um, so the film that I'm making is entitled Drugs, A Love Story. And it's a buddy comedy. It's a, it's a horror buddy comedy between a drug addict who's trying to recover and this, this monstrous demon who keeps pulling them back into doing drugs. And then about midway through the story, they end up becoming best friends. Mm-hmm. And um, he has to face his demons and overcome his addictions. And so within that, that opens up an entire world of kind of hallucination storytelling, um, very like going back and forth between reality and fantasy. Very Lynchian. uh, Given the the concept of drug (laughs) use. Um, And so within that, that's where I guess this kind of abstract storytelling can come in that working with David Lynch gave me a lot of confidence in being like, okay, this is a thing that I can make, uh, given, especially given the technology that we have today, it's a lot easier. Um, and so working with him really, again, it just instilled this confidence in know your vision, like have trust in your vision and have trust as an artist. And then again, relinquish that expectation, and just birth it. And so it really allowed me to kind of dance again between abstract storytelling and then you know, kind of this contrast between dreamlike storytelling mm-hmm. and then, pow, you're right back into this is the real world. And I want to have a lot of, you know, in this script, too, I have a lot of conversations with addiction mm-hmm. um, and the world that we live in today, that it's not just about heroin addiction. It's addiction to your phone. It's addiction to food. It's addiction to entertainment, the news. It's like we are a society of addicts. And I think in, I think in America, especially, we don't have a lot of narratives or conversations about mental health as well as uh, new new ways of looking at addiction. And I think that if we were to create a narrative about that, uh, we'd be living in a healthier society. Mm-hmm. So now, for your, develop- for your funding, do you plan on doing something like a Kickstarter campaign, going to Seed and Spark? Um, What's what's the game plan here to get this made? I'm intrigued by the premise. I'm very intrigued, very intrigued. And Clint will tell you if I hated it, I would tell you that. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah, Clint on will, live TV. <laughs> yeah. Yes, on live. Yes, it, I no holds barred. Um, no, if hey, I, if, know, I, if I thought it was it. if I thought it was a crappy idea and that you'd never be able to sell it, I would tell you. Um, no, I. Well, there's a part of me. There's a there's a part of me that wants to hear that because, again, making a film is so difficult that part of me is like, just tell me it sucks so I can go and be an electrician. <laughs> like, 
so I can go make some money somewhere. Um, no, sorry. Your your question again was um, how am I? How would I attempt to get this? Yeah, are you funded? are you planning on a Kickstarter campaign going to some some place like Seed and Spark that I know a lot of independent filmmakers have had much success with? Um, yeah. So I'm I'm Seed curious Spark, what the what the game plan is here. So again, I'm really blessed to have worked with a lot of producers. Um, as well as I live in Seattle. And one thing that I'm learning about um, finding producers is you should change the name producer out and just basically say, I'm trying to find a person with money. <laughs> and I mean, bottom line. Yep. And um, what I'm lucky about living in Seattle is that there's such an accumulation of tech money up here and a lot of people who are you know, lack of a better word, kind of nerdy about things. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got a lot of you know, Star Wars and movies and entertainment and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of these guys, they work all the time and they don't have a lot of time. And I've been lucky enough now, I have two films coming out, one called Martingale and then the other called Potato Dreams of America. Uh, two incredibly beautiful films, very contrasting. But um, Martingale was produced by a tech guy. Okay. So it's just interesting to really understand it. Like, and there's a part of me that was like, "Damn, James, you really should have gone into like computer science. That way, you could <laughs> fund your own films." Um, but that's not how I work. Um, but yeah, it's just again, it's like utilize the the community that I've built with producers, but then also really narrowing in on who who has the money and who has the uh, aspiration to fund the film. Mm-hmm. So now Kickstarter and these these like these like Kickstarter campaigns and stuff like that, mm -hmm. they're great. But I also understand too that we live in hard times, and I'm not I'm not really wanting to ask the everyday Joe for his money, right? Um, just because it's like I don't want you to throw money at me to to, to put into my art unless you have that money. Because mm -hmm. um, I've worked on a couple projects where we did fundraising, but then like. And this is like, it's really embarrassing because we, we fundraise from a couple of, you know, regular people, but then I'm just the actor and then like the film never got made. And mm -hmm. so it's one, it was just one of those things where it's like, that was a really hard lesson to learn of like, you have to follow through yep. when making a film, if you're going to be taking, you know, if you're going to be getting people's money. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's, it's been a, learn, a huge learning process. So now, any clue when your your the two upcoming films are going to come out? Wish, yeah, I mean, in this in this wow, pandemic in, age. In, in this what? In this in this pandemic age. Yeah, I was going to say it's like so much has changed. Um, so I I want to say that both are both are pretty much done being edited, mm -hmm. and now. Um, and I mean, we've talked about this on the production meeting, this idea of theatrical releases seem like that's not really tangible right now. Yeah. And will it be in the future? Who knows? So I, again, I'm just an actor on these things, but I want to say that they're going to be released within the next six months to a year. Mm -hmm. Oh, and that, I makes, tell you, that makes sense. Potato, Potato Dreams of America that's going to blow a lot of people away. It's, it's, it's an amazingly beautiful film that has to do a lot with um, trans, uh, trans issues and uh, being gay mm -hmm. and all of these things that, I, that 
I feel like we live in an age uh, where we need to see more um, black leads, more Asian leads. We need to see more um, narratives that have a conversation about gay rights and trans rights. And like, I really love that we are moving into kind of this post, hopefully this post white male narrative. And I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. a white dude, so I'm, I'm, I'm understanding what I'm saying, but it's just, it's really interesting because I worked in this workshop a couple years ago where it was the same script and it was the same story, but we switched out the characters of like, okay, well, let's, let's have a woman do this role that would normally go to a man, or let's have, um, a black guy do this role that would normally go to a white person and just see how the scenes go down. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to see what somebody who comes from a different background and a whole different life can bring to a story that normally is given to a very traditional uh, group of people. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm really excited to see where storytelling and, and these stories come from uh, in the future. Mm. Well, unfortunately, James, I just now looked at the clock. We're actually out of time. I can't believe. Oh I can't believe it. I can't well, believe it. What an it. honor. You're going to have to come back on the show just so we just yeah. so we can keep talking. My god. Um Oh my god, yeah, I just looked at the clock. <laughs> yeah. Um well, Pam was so an in, honor. Pam was my engineer Pam was sitting in the booth and she's so engrossed. She wasn't even looking at the clock. So Oh, that's funny. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I get I get to talking and uh, I go deep. Um, but, but you know, Debbie, it lovely, and Pam too, it was just lovely to talk with both of you and, um, an, an incredible honor. I really, really am humbled and appreciate you inviting me onto your show. Oh my God. You've got an open invitation. So yeah, I'm going to get you back on here just to talk about the craft and the profession and maybe take a, a, be- a closer examination into how we're moving forward in this pandemic age. In terms Absolutely. of just your Absolutely. performance, um, you know, from, from an acting standpoint, because that's something that's on everybody's mind right now. Mm-hmm. And so. I would love to have you on a production meeting, too. That would be a really cool, like, cross-platform. Oh, um, absolutely. And, yeah, because I would love to hear more about your life and where you come <laughs> from as well. It sounds like you've got a lot of really great adventures. <laughs> Meeting John Lennon, get out of here. <laughs> Okay, my list is probably, you know, at this point in life, it's like, who haven't I met? Um, yeah, right. But when, okay, now, so so the people can hear production meeting. Where can they find that? Yeah, so we just actually got picked up by our iHeartRadio. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, and if I'm missing another one, I'm so incredibly sorry. Um, no, this okay. podcast is just moving really fast, and it's getting a lot of uh, attention right now. But I would recommend finding us on iHeartRadio because I'm a huge fan. And then I'm also an iOS user, so feel free to uh, find us on Apple Podcasts as well. Terrific. Same places that I can be found. But no, I'm not on yeah, iHeartRadio yet. I, haven't, I have to get my, my techie person to, you know to follow through on that and get up on iHeart. But yeah, Podbean, yeah, Apple, go. Spreaker, Spreaker. You know, I just, I just, some things I just, I'm so busy worrying about content, as Clint knows, um, screening the mm-hmm. films, doing the interviews, do, getting the content for the website, for my print outlets, for the show, that the other stuff is kind of secondary to me. 
Um, because, yeah, falls back on the the back burner. Well, yeah. I was looking at your website though, and you have an immense amount of content, and incredible <laughs> interviews, and so yeah, Thank I mean, you. keep doing what you're doing. Um, yeah, there's so much that isn't even on there. There's decades that isn't oh, even nice. on there, um, only because it was never on a platform to begin with. It was all print. I go way back to oh, wow. when to before the internet. Yo, well, I'm starting to detach from the internet and like all these like journal entries that I write that I would normally throw up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I just keep to myself, and yeah. I'm just kind of like just just start kind of accumulating all this content that I'm making before mm-hmm. I start sharing it. That way, I've just got like a whole bunch of stuff to start sharing once I'm ready. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, James, yeah. this has been so much fun, and I can't wait yeah, to talk honor. to you again. I can't, Thank you so much, I can't wait. Oh, anytime. And, you know, when you talk Thank to Clint, I'll probably be emailing with Clint later tonight anyway. Um, but tell him hi. Tell that guy, tell that guy to get a haircut. No, he <laughs> needs one. No. <laughs> James, oh, well, thank, thank you. Well, thank you again. All right. And I'll talk to you soon, James. All right. Bye, Debbie. Bye-bye. And that was James Grixoni. So be on the lookout. We've got two films coming from him. Martin Gale and Potato Dreams of America sometime. Uh, his podcast that he does with Clint Morris. So... We are over time, 10 minutes today. Didn't even realize what time it was talking to James. It was so fun. Um, That is all the time we have. We'll be back next week. I'm not sure who's with us next week, uh, but I know that we have a couple of exclusive pre-records that you may be hearing as well. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 